0: Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We are in the final subsection of Jesus' end times discourse, which extends from chapter 24 to 25. After staying pretty close to Mark, Matthew records for us several stories which Jesus tells at the end to illustrate the practical application of the things he's just taught. But unlike the stories about the foolish servant, the ten virgins, and the talents, Uh, What we have before us today in 25, 31 to 46 really isn't a parable. It has a simile in it in which Jesus uh, is compared to a shepherd, the righteous are compared to sheep on the right side, and the wicked are compared to the goats on the left. But that's pretty much where the imagery stops. Everything else reads as a straightforward account of what will actually happen when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. So let's look at this uh, account. It reminds me of a warm up activity that I've always found works well with a group of young people. I have them stand together in a group, and then based on whether an individual agrees or disagrees with a statement, they go to opposing sides of the room. So, for example, uh, I might gather them all together and say, Coke is better than Pepsi. And then those who agree with me go to my side of the room, and those who disagree with me go to the other side of the room. And we keep doing the Uh, activity until we get an idea of where everybody is and work our way up to more significant matters. The little activity is a fun way to get kids moving around with some creativity and it can be used to introduce some significant concepts. Well, in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, we have, like that, a separation of a large group into two smaller groups. But unlike the icebreaker activity I just described, we will find that Jesus himself is the one who separates people. Furthermore, we will see that this is important because had Jesus just given the criterion of separation, they would not have picked the correct sides. They end up being surprised that they're in the group that they're in. The group under consideration is on a universal scale, all the nations in verse 32, and the consequences are anything but trivial, either entering eternal life or going into eternal punishment. So, let's listen carefully to find uh, what the criterion for judgment is in this fascinating text. Uh, Starting in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. but the righteous into eternal life. Unlike a child's warm-up activity, these are extremely grave and ominous words, and those who take the words of Jesus seriously, uh, as we hear him talk about going into eternal punishment versus eternal life, we have to be sobered up in our thinking. We notice carefully that the criterion for people dividing into two distinct groups is how they have treated Jesus. But if Jesus had simply said, gather over here if you treated me well, and gather over there if you didn't, there would have been a very different resulting picture. Instead, Jesus separates them, and there are surprises on both sides. Because what indicates one's response to Jesus is one's response to the least of these brothers of mine, as he calls them. The actions done to these people are imputed, to use a theology word, to the Son of Man himself. Several different interpretations of this somber text require consideration. Verse 1 can be labeled the deeds of mercy view. This view sees the least of these brothers of mine as anyone in need. Jesus is so concerned about their well-being that he attributes actions done uh, on their behalf, whomever they may be, as done to him. According to this view, what determines if a person gets into the kingdom, that is to say, enters eternal life, as if they have cared for the poor and needy? The strength of this view is its simplicity. It also fits well with a theme that we have seen so often in Matthew about showing acts of mercy toward the needy. After all, Jesus does say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The righteous have been characterized as those who are like Joseph at the very beginning, dealing with Mary compassionately. Jesus has twice quoted Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus has repeatedly condemned the religious leaders for their lack of concern for the needy. Now, this view has a couple subsets. In its most extreme form, the view says, deeds of mercy are the only criterion, even to the exclusion of faith in Christ. That is to say, believing in Jesus isn't what matters, it's our actions that determine our eternal destiny. Now, the extreme form of this view says that even if a person was, say, a Hindu, and doesn't have any sort of connection to Jesus, this person would still be saved. In the end, if he or she had lived a life of compassion. The difficulty with this view is that it reads the story out of its larger Matthean context, let alone out of its larger biblical context. The whole logic of the gospel narrative is that Jesus' coming is necessary. He had to come to save us from our sin. If salvation was simply based on doing good things to other people, then the atoning work of Jesus is necessary. Everything he's about to do in the next couple of chapters in Matthew becomes unnecessary. A more muted form of this view, uh, and better nuanced, states that these compassionate actions are the fruit of, Of our changed heart because of our saving relationship with Jesus. As we will see in the next chapter, Jesus' death should be understood as establishing the new covenant, which gives people a new heart so that the law is written on their heart. In this view, the deeds of compassion are not the cause of salvation, but the indicators of it. Now, This approach has the benefit of escaping the criticism of the earlier form of the view and also takes the deeds of compassion seriously. However, it does require a degree of theological sophistication uh, that is higher than what this particular text contains. Instead, when we just read the story, it does say, uh, Inherit the kingdom, dot, 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 for I was hungry and you fed me, and so on. And conversely, the negative version is, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, dot, 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 for I was hungry and you gave me no food. The second view can be labeled the classical dispensational view. This observes that the judgment occurs when the Son of Man comes in his glory, which, according to premillennial eschatology, is after the tribulation and at the beginning of the millennium. This is different than the great white throne judgment, then, of Revelation 20, which happens after the millennium. This view also stresses the gathering of all the nations, or what we could translate as the Gentiles, This third group, who are not the sheep or the goats, these brothers of mine, are then Jewish people. Some adherents of this view will also point out that there's no mention of a resurrection in this account. So, according to this view, this particular judgment is about entering into the millennium based upon the treatment of the Jewish people during their harsh treatment during the tribulation. Now, this view has the advantage of thinking seriously about the identity of these brothers of mine. However, one fatal blow against it is the consideration from biblical theology. That is to say, it is important to understand Matthew's doctrines of salvation in the end times as he portrays them, since, after all, I mean, he is an author of holy scripture. The Gospel of Matthew doesn't require, say, uh, the book of Revelation or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to be intelligible. It doesn't require our end times charts to understand it. The difficulty with this view is that it's so nuanced that it's hard to imagine readers of Matthew coming to these conclusions. Matthew has given no indicators to his readers that his judgment will not apply to them. It, it instills fear in them, as if, uh, and they should rightly be worried about what will happen if I were there or when I'm there. A third view, which we can briefly consider, it can be labeled the rewards view, which leans heavily upon the teaching found elsewhere that we are saved by grace through faith, apart from works of any kind. And since the criterion in Matthew 2531 46 is clearly that of works, uh, they conclude that what is in question is not salvation, but a degree of rewards there. The difficulty with this view is the incredibly strong language used to describe the two different destinies. On the one hand, there are those who are blessed by the Father, who inherit the kingdom, verse 34. These are the righteous, who enter into eternal life, verse 46. And on the other hand, there are those who are cursed, who have to depart from Jesus into eternal fire, verse 41. These go away into eternal punishment, verse 42. With such strong vocabulary being used, one wonders what else Jesus could have possibly said to make the message any clearer. The issue being considered is going into the kingdom or going into hell. A fourth view can be labeled the ambassador view. This view focuses its attention on the identity of these brothers of mine and stresses that in light of other family language in Matthew, these people must be rightly related to Jesus. Only Jesus' followers can be called his brothers. This view also stresses that the phenomenon of having actions done to lowly Christian followers being imputed to Jesus has occurred before in Matthew. Uh, Listen carefully to what the mission discourse says in Matthew 10, 24-25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And then again in verses 40 to 42 Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple truly i say to you he will by no means lose his reward now recall from our earlier episode the context of the mission discourse jesus sends out the disciples as the apostles the sent out ones the ones who carry his message and sends them out with his with his authority and yet practically with nothing. The reason they have so little is because this forces the audience to make a decision. Either the listeners in the different cities will respond to their call and thus take care of Jesus' ambassadors, or they will refuse the call, leaving Jesus' ambassadors hungry and uncared for, with the result that the apostles shake the dust off their sandals as a testimony against them. In fact, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for these people. The benefit of this view is that it does not require us to prop up Matthew with other information, either from our own man-made end times charts or even from later revelation. This is a conclusion that Matthew's readers can come to, and there are sufficient similarities in the passage to suggest the latter is intended to be interpreted in light of the former. And This doesn't mean that the deeds of compassion turn out to be not all that relevant, but instead that they are situated in the context of showing, of demonstrating acceptance of the gospel message. Again, this is very serious business. Let's stop and think about it. If Jesus were to come, and separate the world into two groups better than that when jesus comes and separates the world into two groups the saved and the lost based on their concrete acceptance of the gospel where would you stand would you go into eternal punishment or eternal life have you responded to the call of the gospel thank you for listening to the emmaus radio ministry podcast This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu slash partners.